Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. I'm your host, Dean Michaeloon, and today my guest is Rebecca Nolan. You may know her as T to Triceps on Instagram. She's a nutritionist, and I'm not going to say your qualifications, Rebecca, because I think I don't know them fully, but you have an applied psychology degree. Is that correct? That is correct, yes. Yeah, super. Um, so Rebecca um, is very well versed when it comes to nutrition science, even though it's not her degree area in terms of that's her her undergraduate degree is in applied psychology. Um, she is a certified nutritionist, but she has a very good grasp of nutrition science and she is the person that kind of got me into the evidence-based nutrition field um, many years ago. I don't know if you particularly remember that, uh, Rebecca, but you kind of pushed me towards um, doing um, my nutrition qualification and sort of got me into this field properly. Like So um, So I thank you for that. <laughs> You're very welcome. No, I do remember that. I do remember that conversation, yeah. Yeah, so um, and I suppose it's 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 that chain of events that that has led us here. But um, so yeah, we're we're going to talk about science. We're going to talk about a little bit of critical thinking today, um, and we're going to have maybe a little bit of fun with some conspiracy theories and talk about some veganism and carnivore diets and kind of uh, see where see where that all goes. Um, so we'll take it from there. But um. Yeah, so I suppose, Rebecca, have you got anything else that you want to say in terms of your introduction? Is there anything you want to add there? or? No, I don't think so. I think you've pretty much covered it all. I'm excited to uh, chat about these things. Super, super. So if I was to come to you as a person that didn't really know that much about nutrition, and they're a little bit confused, but they see this kind of, you're on Instagram and you see people hashtagging evidence-based nutrition or evidence-based medicine even like what how, how would you define that okay good question so i think first of all it's kind of important to call out that evidence-based especially nutrition has definitely become a more popular term um especially i would say in the last year to two years so i think something that i would like to be explicit about is the actual definition of evidence-based nutrition versus evidence-based as it's kind of used in social media and pop nutrition Mm -hmm. so the whole idea of evidence-based like you kind of mentioned it did come from evidence-based medicine so it's kind of being able to use like scientific reasoning um research testing hypotheses to kind of come up with a reasonable um confidence that like maybe an intervention works so for example if you're testing a drug a new drug you would kind of have like two groups of people you would have one group take the drug and you'd have one group taking a placebo if there were massive improvements in the group taking the drug you would maybe conclude that okay this drug seems effective it's a good intervention you know we should produce this drug hmm. so this kind of um I might be getting a little bit into the weeds here, but this can kind of carry over to nutrition where we start to do research on different, you know, nutrition interventions or potentially like that could be weight loss or it could be improving uh, the nutrient status of a person, could be weight gain. There's a lot of different ways that we could do research within nutrition. And one of the tenets of evidence-based nutrition is to kind of take the available evidence so that research, that science and inform your practice. 
So being able to say, okay, there's a huge body of literature, there's so much research on, you know, whey protein powder, uh, we can say with quite a lot of confidence that whey protein powder is very safe, it's effective in uh, as a supplement to your diet, if you want to increase your protein intake, there's some benefits to taking it if you're trying to gain muscle or if you are, you know, um, just trying to increase your protein intake in general. So that's kind of like an evidence-based recommendation. It's like, yeah, if you want to increase your protein, maybe your resistance training, um, whey protein is a good call based off all of the evidence that's there. Hmm. So that's kind of one facet to it. Another facet is that there isn't research on everything. So as a practitioner, it's kind of important that you also trust your experience so that's not to say that like every anecdote that you have is worthy of kind of being put into practice with your clients, but it's more that once you start to kind of build up your expertise in the field, that you're seeing patterns, you're seeing things that work for many clients, and you kind of build up your own evidence base of your experience to inform your practice. So there's it's very important to kind of consider both. So for example, like maybe there's a, a wealth of research that says that you know, people do really well on very low carb diets. Uh, weight loss happens with low carb diets, but you've tried this out with your clients and you find that some of them get on fine on low carb and they do lose weight and some of them absolutely hate it. And mm. you kind of start to inform like your this, you have this hypothesis for you as a practitioner that, okay, it actually seems that even though the evidence might support low carb dieting for weight loss, that it's actually not a good strategy for certain people they can't sustain it, they don't enjoy it, and it's kind of making them miserable. So you as a practitioner are now in a place to say, okay, for some of my clients, I need to assess, maybe I have some measures that I think would work of whether this person would do well on a particular intervention. So it's kind mm. of taking the evidence that exists through the science and your knowledge as a practitioner enables to be able to kind of make informed decisions and do what's best for the people that you're um, working with. Yeah. Yeah, like I think, um, so I suppose it's the main thing is it's that amalgamation of, okay, here's what the science says, but I have a certain amount of experience in this field based on my working with a particular type of person with a particular type of problem. And, you know, I'm obviously taking into consideration the person in front of me, their general lifestyle and what they need and sort of bringing it all together to help them come to a solution, the, the best possible and safest possible solution to, to their problem. Would that be kind of a, a good way of, of structuring it as well? I think so. And I guess something that maybe was relevant to put in the intro is that, my, so my profession, like I don't work as a, as a nutritionist. It's kind of more of a side gig, I would say. So mm. my actual profession, I'm a qualitative researcher. So typically when we look at nutrition science or many of the science fields, they're quantitative studies. So they don't have a qualitative aspect where they're looking at the behavior and attitudes of the participants in the study. And I honestly think that this is like a huge downfall of nutrition science, because I think many practitioners acknowledge that even though studies say something is effective, it's honestly like not sustainable for people in the long run. So we see this a lot with, I mean, any kind of restrictive dieting, 
within the scope of a short-term study, people lose weight, but they tend to regain it afterwards. And the reasons for that can be pretty obvious. Like it's very restrictive. It means that they can't eat out with their family and friends. Um, it kind of doesn't fit with their lifestyle. It doesn't fit with their work. So there's lots of interventions that we can kind of tell from a common sense perspective don't work, but they're never actually commented on as part of the study. We never ask the participants during the study, how are you finding this? How are you getting on? Do you think that this would work for you in the long run? Or following up with them with some of these questions at a later point when the study has ended. And mm -hmm. I think as a practitioner, you ask these questions. I mean, ultimately, you're a nutritionist to kind of be there for people and help people with their goals. So you're trying to work with them to find the strategy that best works for them to accomplish their goals. And I would hope that most practitioners who claim to be evidence-based are kind of really taking that human-centered approach. So although you have the evidence and you have your experience, you're also very much focused on that individual, like you said. Um, but yeah, so I, I think like such a large part of my my life is my is my job and that's qualitative research, like interviewing people about their experiences and their behaviors. Um, and I would love to see that carried more into nutrition research. And I, mm. I think it's picking up a little bit. I have seen like a few papers that have a qualitative lens, but yeah, I guess that's another component yeah yeah like i suppose it's we could talk all day about calories macros nutrients micronutrients phytonutrients blah 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 but i suppose behavior is what really underpins everything with regards to nutrition or, or, or dieting behaviors and i suppose sometimes people get a little bit too focused on being science-based, being evidence-based and not focusing enough on, okay, this lady is 35 years old. She has three kids. She has a certain amount of stressors. She hears her past experiences with diets. This is how her external and internal environments influences her behaviors. And oftentimes that's where the, as you said, the experience comes into play massively because you know for a lot of scenarios we just don't have a paper for every or for every scenario we don't have a paper to say look at this is the conclusion we can make so generally from my mind evidence-based and evidence-based nutrition and the literature informs us and gives us clues as to what may be effective with regards to nutrition interventions but as you said, Rebecca, it's so, so important that we actually look at the person in front of us or the group of individuals, if it's, you know, in a larger scale and consider their behaviors and some of the things that influences their behaviors, their their mindset, um, the, the external environment that they're in and a lot of the other different factors that influence that, you know? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, 100%. I think as well, like they're there are circumstances where the body of evidence can give us very concrete guidance on something to do. So I guess an example of, I'll go back to an example of like where it's not entirely clear. So if somebody wants to lose weight and that's their goal, it's like there's a whole there's a whole body of literature on various ways to like intervene and try try weight loss like low carb just low calorie in general low fat um keto like all of these things um you know increasing exercise like increasing protein like there's so many 
ways of kind of tackling weight loss. And it really does come down to you as a practitioner to understand what would fit in with your client's lifestyle, what like changing their behaviors to make weight loss maintainable. Like the, the body of evidence alone is not enough in or- to inform your decision. On the flip side of that, if you have an athlete, so we'll say like a powerlifter, and they want to do everything they can to maximize the performance in a gym, like during their training, there is pretty clear evidence of like what supplements that they could take. So, I mean, you would recommend them to take creatine and maybe caffeine. Uh, Those are two ergogenic supplements that we know have really high efficacy in increasing performance in the gym or, you know, at an event like a, a competition. So it really depends on the circumstance, on the goal and what you're using the evidence to inform. So I think like if it's a very clear intervention where it's like literally a substance that has an effect, it's a lot more straightforward. But if it's more like behavioral and lifestyle change, it's a lot more. There's a lot more things that you need to consider and you need to kind of have a have a much broader picture than just the evidence. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Like and another, I suppose, pitfall of science and science and people's minds I, I was having a conversation with with somebody um in the shop today and they were telling me about something that they saw on facebook and me being polite i just didn't really respond to it because i knew okay that's that's incorrect that's definitely incorrect but they were kind of convinced because a lot of the articles that you see on facebook you know, they, they, they use convincing copy and lingo, but some of them have got study links in them. Um, and that's a real problem because I suppose for the person that's not scientifically literate, shall we say, or maybe that's not the right term, but more versed in research methods and the tenets of science, it can be very convincing for them to see a Facebook post, a Facebook article, about i don't know say pesticides in food causing cancer or something like that and they, they scroll down see it click the link read the abstract and you know they're convinced um so what would be kind of if say someone's listening to this and they're not that well versed in the science what would be some things that you would give them that you could say to them rebecca for to watch out for in a sense when it comes to reading articles on social media and on different sites and stuff like that that seem to be convincing i guess my advice is stop it (laughs) Um, (laughs) don't read those articles no i'm joking um okay so i yeah this is like extremely common so i think everybody knows somebody at least i do um i know many people who read articles or they hear something on the radio or something on the tv and it sounds very convincing and they send you like the link or the article or whatever it is to be like, oh my God, look at this. Like, is this, you know, is this accurate? Like, what do you think of this or whatever? Or I can't believe that I like that this is actually a thing and they believe it quite certainly. And there's a few, I mean, it's kind of complex, right? Because you can't necessarily ask people to read an article, read the reference, but then also go and check the entire body of literature on that topic like that's Mm. not practical but I think there might be a little bit of work that could be done in informing people like what are accurate sources of information and um not necessarily like how to spot misinformation but I guess like kind of having a filter of what might not be 
good like a good source so generally if if there's an article about something or it's in the newspapers on the radio it's there because it's a good headline so it's something that will grab people's attention oftentimes it's negative and they're kind of cherry picking something because they know that it will get clicks so i think one of the first flags that somebody can have when they see an article like this is like wait why why is this media source posting this um is it because they think it's going to help people and it's accurate information or is it because they know it will drive clicks to their site or you know it's to generate um some kind of like conversation um so i think like that's that's one thing to consider a few other things to consider um i guess when i say cherry picking just to define that it's like okay so there could be we'll say a hundred studies on a topic and that whole body all of those studies um might be pretty aligned in what the conclusions are so they might be run in independent research labs by different researchers they have like uh you know in different countries in the world and different populations and they're all arriving at a similar conclusion so we'll say that conclusion is vegetables are good for you and you might have one weird study that for some reason whatever design that they used or sample that they used they found that like a very very high concentration of a particular compound in a vegetable can cause toxicity so we'll say that like there's some mineral out there that if you consume tons and tons of it it causes toxicity so what a media source is likely to do is say to completely abstract that and say that this mineral found in this vegetable can kill you so we'll yes. say the headline will be broccoli can kill you <laughs> but that's like a complete distortion of what has actually occurred so the research might have tested like inhumanely high doses of a particular mineral that is does happen to be found in broccoli but it would never be consumed uh within it like you know it would be impossible to consume um that much of that compound um but in order to generate clicks um they they you know reframe the finding to be broccoli will kill you uh people kind of see that there's a study link they read the study link saying oh a, a mineral that happens to be found in broccoli in extremely high doses in kind of scientific language isn't that great for you um and i think people like like you kind of say they will read the abstract and a lot of that language is hard to understand but they won't take the general gist away which is like yeah okay it doesn't sound like this thing is great it's unhealthy i should stop eating broccoli but really that's not at all what anybody should be doing and i think it's like it's it's kind of hard to advise people because i mean i think that the people that need to hear this advice are the people who are not listening to this podcast but it's like <laughs> understand that like these the media will twist study findings and they're not giving you the full picture of the evidence so something that would be amazing would be like if they also kind of said but also here's 100 other studies that show that broccoli is amazing for you it's super healthy you could eat literally a bath full of broccoli and you wouldn't even get close to hitting the threshold of the, that this mineral becomes toxic um but yeah so i think like there's a, there's so mi- there's so much to unpack here it's like the media represent misrepresenting the evidence there's also this kind of like i think we you kind of wanted to touch on logical fallacies later but there's this like mm. appeal to authority so it's like okay this newspaper who i trust and they have a good name are publishing this thing like this must be legit or a lot of the time what you hear is like on the radio them doing interviews with somebody who has doctor in their title which means Dr. Oz. Yeah, which means like <laughs> absolutely nothing, right? Like you could be like a doctor of chiropractic or whatever that is and 
start talking about nutrition and people will buy that because they I mean and I mean it's totally fair right we expect doctors I mean typically medical doctors but we have this association with a doctor is really smart they have gone through a PhD they really know their stuff even the, mm. if they've done a PhD in a completely unrelated area we trust them um so I I've seen like so much rubbish recently about like you know oh this certain doctor said if you consume like however much vitamin c it will protect you from coronavirus and this doctor has like absolutely no background in nutrition he is very controversial he's like he's not actually like a, you know respected by anybody within his profession he's just kind of a quack who is trying to kind of i guess disrupt disrupt things um but yeah i guess like people are looking for things that will generate interest so the radio will interview this person with doctor in their title who is a controversial figure and is saying controversial things because people will tune into that and be like, wow, that's really interesting. And it will drive them traffic. So it's not because they have the best interest of the listener at heart. So I think um, that's one thing. And then of course the appeal to authority, it's like what, I guess being a little bit more critical in how you think of your sources, where you get your sources um, or who are your sources, I should say. So why does a doctor who has a completely unrelated like degree, um, why should you listen to them um, about nutrition and I mean if you kind of think through the argument or why why you think that they're trustworthy and just try to pick holes in that so you know oh well I trust them because they're a doctor and it's like okay well they're a doctor of you know chiropractic so like does that does that change anything and they're like oh well maybe they got taught nutrition as part of their degree like well maybe you could check that I mean it's pretty easy to google like what gets taught in a course um and you see that there's no nutrition and they're like oh well maybe they you know they're they're a doctor maybe they have nutritionist friends but I think like as you go down that line you kind of start to realize how faulty that reasoning is and that Mm. you probably shouldn't be relying on this person as a source of information Anyway, yeah. I've just waffled for like, I feel like forever. So I'm going to pause there. And see if <laughs> no, it's good. It's good. Waffling is good. We uh, we get a lot of good information. I suppose there's, there's a good few things to unpack there. Um, one thing that I want to mention was, I suppose, people can be quite critical of GPs and physicians. You know, I suppose, as you said, there is that authority element to being a doctor but then on the other side you have people that are very critical of gps because you know a lot of people are saying oh modern medicine is you know and big pharma blah 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 but i suppose the way i like to look at if you go into your gp he's got a good he or she has good a good general knowledge of things like you know, anatomy, nutrition, pharmacology, physiology, a lot of these things that are important for helping you, um, helping diagnose what's going on with, you know, your diagnose your symptoms and come to a, um, a conclusion to help you uh, get better. But if not, they can refer you out. And I like to look at doctors kind of as like an encyclopedia of other people that they can send you as well. Or at least that's what a good GP should do is, is if they can't figure it out themselves they send you to a specialist you know um and well the other thing that i wanted to mention there was i suppose again there can be an individual can be very intelligent in one area um of say for example we could have someone that's very very smart with regards to law or accounting you know someone that's really good at numbers but again just because they're, they've got a certain level of education and smarts in one area does not mean that 
they know everything, <laughs> you know. Um, and oftentimes you'll see very intelligent people just kind of go down the wrong route in terms of science overall. Like two big examples that come to mind with regards to the field of nutrition is Linus Pauling and Tim Noakes. So Linus Pauling um, has a lot of authority because he has two Nobel Prizes. He has a Nobel Peace Prize and then he has another one um, for chemistry, I think it was. He made some uh, discoveries either in molecular biology or chemistry. I can't remember which one it was. But he has a lot of credibility. You know, generally would be considered... um, someone over the last hundred years to be fairly influential with regards to certain fields like um, chemistry, molecular molecular biology. But to cut a long story short, essentially he got in, he went down this rabbit hole with regards to megadosing vitamin C. And he essentially was led to believe that it was a cure for cancer and all this other crazy stuff. And, you know, when we sort of take a I look back on the evidence with regards to megadosing vitamins and stuff like that. It's it's not none of it really shows any promise, and it definitely doesn't show any promise with regards to curing cancer. And that's an example of one person who has a lot of credibility in an adjacent field, you would say, to nutrition, um, who has that authority. But he just went way off. You know, he just um, was incorrect about this particular thing. And, you know, if, if we can extra- extrapolate that, that happens a lot, um, as you mentioned, with people that are doctors. And just because even it's, it's interesting, like if you are approached on the street with somebody by somebody wearing a white lab coat, <laughs> that in itself has inbuilt authority to it. And you'll probably listen to what that person has to say, um, even if they're just like literally a crazy person that's just decided to wear a white lab coat. Um, but yeah, I suppose it's th- that's a that's a very important point to make is that just because an, an individual is particularly smart in one area um, or knows something has a breadth of knowledge in one particular subject does not mean that they know everything and that they they are an authority on subjects like nutrition and i think doctors in particular are a big example of that and as you said some people can be can call themselves doctors but they're doctors of chiropractic or they have a phd which allows them to put the word doctor in front of their um name and that has some inbuilt problems to it as well. Yeah, no, there's, yeah, I mean, I I agree with everything that you said. I think, like, uh, to go back on a a couple of points. So I have, like, a few thoughts around, I guess, GPs in general. So the thing is, is that, like, GPs, I mean, I don't want to generalise globally to every GP, like, medical course, but they typically don't spend much time on nutrition. So they'll go through the basics, like the very, very basics of nutrition um, that you might get taught in like home economics in secondary school, like maybe a little bit more detail than that, but not very much. Um, and that's terrible, right? Like you would, you kind of, you, you hear that and you're like, well, I mean, why wouldn't they get taught more about nutrition? It's like absolutely vital to health. But at the same time, these people are trying to like understand like every, nearly every medical condition that somebody might present to you within their practice. And Mm. they don't spend a lot of time on anything in great detail. And exactly like you said, it's kind of they try to get a feel for what might be wrong. And if it's not something that they can help with or need specialist attention, then they'll refer out. 
I think something that I wish happened more is that people would refer out though so I I, like this is completely anecdotal but so I have an underactive thyroid um and I have had this since I was like I I think it kind of started like my thyroid level started to drop when I was around like 16 um and the doctor that I was seeing absolutely should have referred me to an endocrinologist like 100 Mm percent but I think that they were they were quite um I don't want to say confident but it was almost like they were like no like I I, you have come to me as a doctor I should be able to help you not refer you out I think they kind of almost see it as like a failure on them if they're not able to you know provide an answer to you or help you um and I'm definitely not painting all doctors with the same brush it's just happened to me a couple of times where in hindsight I should have been referred but it didn't happen for a really long time because the doctor was kind of taking the responsibility on themselves to to help which I mean is totally understandable but um I do wish referring out would happen more often Hmm. Um, the other thing is that I think something that's very enlightening is if you have a friend who's done, um, gone through like medical school or done like a medical degree or anything to do with medicine or like, so my best friend is a vet, um, and you realize that like, oh, like doctors are literally just humans. Like they're they're (laughs) just people and they skipped classes in college. They barely passed their exams. They parachute, like they're just people. They're not like these gods that walk among us that have like their encyclopedias of knowledge, you know. Hmm. And I think that's something that's important to remember. Um, that like no matter who they are, even if they are really intelligent, like everybody's just human and they have flaws and they are not going to have all of the answers. Um, and that's not to make everybody doubt, you know, their their um that their doctors are or their surgeons or whoever. But I think it's it's a good point to remember that like, you know, people are human people make mistakes people have like convictions that they don't have much evidence behind and that's just part of you know being human um and I guess like building on that so what you were mentioning about the authority bias is that like we have this for a reason like we don't because when you, I think when you, when we talk about authority bias we're like oh you know don't just listen to people because they've doctor in their title but like we do that because it actually does have a benefit like we have we've learned as humans that you know, by trusting in authority figures, it's better from like an evolutionary perspective for our survival, because those figures are often ones that will kind of, you know, get us through tough times. They're the ones that protect our health. They're like kind of keeping society together. So like in terms of like police or whoever it is. So like authority is important to respect to a degree and like evolutionary, evolutionarily it benefits us. So that's why we kind of have this bias, but it can go a little bit too far when we start like blindly trusting people who are unfortunately giving us misinformation. Um, But again, it's just, I think like, I think like my background in psychology just makes me be like, oh, well, it's, that's just, you know, being human. It's like having authority bias is because we're human and people who are authority figures making mistakes, it's because they're human. And like, don't get me wrong, like some people do actually have malicious intent and they're harming people. And I'm completely against that. But I think for some, in the case of some people, they think that they're doing the right thing and spreading the right information when it's like completely wrong. Yeah. Yeah. No, a hundred percent agree with that. Um, so I suppose taking it back to the general concept of critical thinking. So Critical thinking is obviously a big component of science, evidence-based medicine, evidence-based nutrition. What would be some things, Rebecca, for 
just the average person that may be listening to this podcast, what would be some things that you could give them to do or some thought processes that you could get them to engage in that would make them better critical thinkers? Just from the general population's perspective, someone that's not overly versed, well-versed in science in general, but they want to become better at spotting bullshit basically and become better better critical thinkers okay so i think like this is for sure really complex but i think like anything critical thinking is a skill that you can build and everybody's gonna suck at it especially if they haven't practiced it before but i think that there are like some things that you can sort of start doing um not even like in the moment I think critical thinking in the moment is really difficult but like you can start by doing things sort of reflecting on stuff that has happened and kind of thinking through um just anything so I'll, I'll like give an example so one of the things that I find quite useful to do and it's something that like you can continually get better at is questioning why you hold a particular belief so for example if you think that in order to um i don't know lose weight you have to cut out carbs so the first, like it's kind of like sitting down and just thinking through why you believe that so maybe you write it down you're like oh i believe it because every time i have cut carbs i've lost weight and then you can be like okay in a world where in a world where cutting carbs was the way to lose weight what would that world look like it would mean that anybody who ate carbs was not able to lose weight um so you're kind of like running this experiment in your head and you're like oh but like I definitely know people who have lost weight eating carbs so I guess in this world that I'm actually living in that's not a concrete rule so you can kind of start to expand your model then so you can maybe like think okay well maybe it's not only carbs that you know result in weight loss potentially it's something else um maybe it's just you know junk food and you can kind of keep going through this thought process until you can kind of understand like okay do you need to update your belief based off all of the evidence that you can see in the world or maybe your belief holds maybe it's it's quite accurate but I guess like it kind of comes back to just understanding like being very concrete about why you believe the things that you do and as you kind of like go through this process of, you know, what in the world would have to be true in order for this belief to hold, um, I think you kind of build your, your skill here and you can start to do it like in the moment. So you might be having a conversation with somebody and you might say something like, oh, but you know that like bread is unhealthy. And then you can kind of maybe pause and think, wait, in a world where that were th- true, like, what would that mean? Like, what would that look like? It would mean that most people who ate bread were unhealthy and then you could think oh well like my friend's a runner and they're really fit and they eat bread all the time so you can kind of like start to um I guess more and more in the moment check yourself and be like actually you know I don't know if I concretely believe this I'm going to need to go do some reading and check up on it and you can apply this to like literally everything like I mean I was in work the last day and I was having a conversation with somebody and I was like actually I don't I don't agree with that like I I don't think that that's the right approach to go with. And then I was like, wait, why don't I agree with this? Like, is this actually like, and I I just had to have like a moment where I was like, hang on, I'm actually not sure that I believe what I just said. I'm not sure where mm. that came from. And I had to go and like check, why do I not believe that this is a good idea? And after reflecting on it, I was like, you know, I actually don't have a strong reason for believing that this isn't the right approach. It was kind of like a gut reaction that I had to disagree with you. I don't know where it came from. It wasn't evidence-based. 
Um, so I think, and, and the conclusion was, okay, I need to go do research on this thing because we actually don't have data here to inform our decision. But again, that was like a pile of waffle. But I think it's kind of trying to, one of the, I think one of the best tools for critical thinking is challenging your own beliefs. And then you can also start to apply that to other people, right? So if you read something or you hear something, and be like, in a world where that were true, what would it look like? And is that the world that I'm experiencing? Um, and I mean, maybe it's not always that straightforward, but I think you could also sort of, another one is building up um, some, I guess some sources of information that you know are unbiased and accurate. So one that I reference all of the time when people ask me about supplements is examine.com. So mm. examine, they, they do unbiased um, write-ups of all of the evidence. So all of the research that's ever been done on particular supplements. And it's kind of like, oh, you know, my, my personal trainer told me that this supplement was really useful and it would help me lose weight. It's like, okay, I could believe my personal trainer because they do seem like, you know, they're an authority figure in the world of fitness. They probably know what they're talking about. But just to be sure, I'm going to go check this source that I know I trust and is validated um, and see what they say. So I think it's kind of also like building up uh, sources of accurate information. And often that can be hard to find because mm -hmm. I mean, if you Google, you know, what supplements should I take? You might get put on a site that is the complete opposite of examine.com that is trying <laughs> to sell you every supplement under the sun. So I think it, it's quite hard to do that as well. I don't want to make it sound like it's very easy to find accurate sources, but it, it is another avenue. Hmm. Yeah, like, I don't know if you've read uh, Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow, um, but in that book, he talks about, the I suppose, one of the main subject matter in that book is something called heuristics and this is where a heuristic is essentially where we sort of have a as you said kind of that that answer to a question we sort of immediately answer a question without too much of a thought to it so we kind of we might have a particular belief about something but you know, we have when we have this sort of quick um, knee-jerk reaction or answer to something, um, because that's what we've experienced in the past, or um, it's generally just easier for us to not think too deeply <laughs> about um, certain answers um, to certain questions. And as you said um, earlier, Rebecca, about us being human that's just part of being human we we use these heuristics this kind of um unthoughtful thought process so this um lack of i suppose again you're i suppose the the lack of major thought going into a particular answer to a particular question saves us energy in a sense so there is there is a reason why we have these kind of this method of thinking um but i think a big component as rebecca said about critical thinking is challenging your own beliefs and having a conversation with yourself about some of the things that you do believe so um you know, and this and this can be about anything. I know we're 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 talking a lot about nutrition here, but this could literally be be about anything. And I want to talk about conspiracy theories, <laughs> but I want to keep it on nutrition for the time being. So we're going to talk about conspiracy theories um, shortly, but um, because I think it does link perfectly into the conversation about thinking critically, being skeptical, and challenging our beliefs about certain things. Um, but I suppose another 
segue that we could take would be extreme diets like vegan diets, veganism, um, or on the other side of the spectrum, you may have heard of carnivore diets where someone eats exclusively meat-based or animal-based products. Um, And I suppose with the rise of these diets, in particular the carnivore diet, um, it does kind of show that we we as a people, we as a race, do have an inherent lack of inbuilt critical thinking. We're not born with the ability to think critically. And as Rebecca said, it's something that takes time to practice and get better at. We are, you know, from the offset, not good at critically thinking at thinking critically, sorry, because of these heuristics, as I said, these um, this thought process of not really thinking too hard about a particular belief or answer that you may have to a particular question. And as I said, that's why a lot of people will sometimes choose beliefs or answers to questions that fit nicely into their or their existing set of beliefs. And oftentimes we can be blind to what's really going on because life is extremely complex and confusing and there's a lot of different variables going on. So our brains typically prefer to try and define things in a very easy and neatly packaged (laughs) kind of a way. And I suppose that's where a lot of these um, extreme diets and these these thought processes and these almost cult-like beliefs can come into 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 the into the fray shall we say mm-hmm. um so yeah like what what would what would your thoughts be kind of on vegan diets carnivore diets and how they relate to thinking critically and skepticism and science oh that is such a a big question so i think <laughs> like to start with um I mean, where do you even start? So I think one thing that we should kind of maybe outline to start with is that there is nothing inherently wrong with veganism. Well, actually, there is something inherently wrong with veganism in that you will be lacking certain vitamins um, and minerals depending on the composure of your diet, but you'll absolutely be missing B12 and you'll probably be missing iron as well and potentially a few more. Um, But those are, are pretty much guaranteed, right? So there is a flaw in that way of eating, but that flaw can be corrected for. So you can just very easily take a vitamin B12 supplement and you're absolutely fine. So I think you can be completely healthy um, and do very, very well on a vegan diet. If you're, of course, doing it for the right reasons, and we'll come to that in a, in a minute. Now, the carnivore diet, which is the complete other end of the spectrum, is arguably quite unhealthy. So one of the key components of human health um, that like prevents you from getting disease, helps you to live a longer, more functional, ha- healthier life is the presence of fruit and vegetables. Um, and that's like a combination of the vitamins and minerals and fiber within that those fruit and vegetables. So, I mean, even if you kind of try to make the argument that, oh, what about if I ate a carnivore diet, but then I supplemented with fiber? which I don't think anybody eating a carnivore diet would even consider. <laughs> but um, there's like, vegetables are so complex. I just, like, we still don't fully understand all of the amazing 
things that, that are in the full range of fruit and vegetables, like all of the phytonutrients and like everything that goes into them. So it's kind of like you're missing this matrix of health. Uh, there's a huge component missing from your diet. And I don't think any amount of supplementation can make up for that. So um, I think that even though they are, I guess, two extreme ends of the spectrum, um, one where you're eating only plants and one where you're eating pretty much only meat, um, one is substantially, substantially better than the other. Um, so yeah, just, just to make that clear. So mm. then... I think when it comes to like critical thinking and diets is that there's there's so much that goes into this it kind of um diets can kind of become like almost like religions in that they're a belief system more so than something that somebody's doing for an explicit factual evidence-based reason um and again like this is I, there's so much psychology entwined in this it can be that like the group that you're a part of your in group many of them are vegan um, and they kind of they're all doing it and even if you're not kind of consciously recognizing that social pressure that like um, that in-group pressure you might start to eat vegan and you might tell yourself oh I'm doing it for like you know health reasons I'm doing it because of like xyz when actually it is some some kind of conformity and again, like there's not anything explicitly wrong with that. And I don't want to like critique people for like something that they can't always help. But I think that there's like a lot of different reasons that people might start to go vegan and not all of them are maybe because it is actually the best choice for them. Um, The other is kind of like, I think veganism in general is quite complex because there could be the argument, like some people might argue, okay, I'm going vegan for health reasons. And it's, completely like it's so easy to dismantle that argument and um, because you can be healthy pretty much eating anything except for carnivore um <laughs> as long as there's like fruit and veg and whole grains in your diet you can be very healthy and we have a lot of research to support that we have like you know longitudinal studies supporting that so the whole health argument or it being healthier than any other way of eating can be quite easily debunked but then you can kind of get into, you know, this ethics and morals of it. And that's like an area that I'm like, listen, if you don't want to eat animal products because you as a, like you fundamentally believe that that is the wrong thing to do, like carry on, like by all means, I support you. It's generally when it's for like the, the claims of like health or you're going to live forever or it's a better way of eating and you know like meat is bad for you animal products are bad for you like that is such like rubbish but I guess I mean it's it was like very topical I guess a few months ago when the uh, game changers came out um mm. but I guess like that again that's kind of one of these things that it's like if you look up to like certain athletes um you're one that kind of believes that documentaries are an accurate source of information it might be very easy or easy for you to think that you're making an evidence-based decision to go vegan and it's substantially healthier um and like that that's like a really big pitfall because it's it's not um and again like there's absolutely nothing wrong with going vegan it can be healthy but yeah it's kind of like the reasons behind why you're doing something and again like that kind of goes back to be, to kind of you know thinking like okay why do I have this belief um, are my is is like my information accurate? Uh, the sources I'm getting it from, how how reliable are they? Have I looked at multiple perspectives? Have I considered an opposing argument? Um, it's kind of like thinking through. I mean, and 
like I'm not saying that everybody has to do this either like it is very like you're saying like I haven't read Thinking Fast and Slow but I'm very familiar with the concepts in it but it's like to go through this this kind of thought reasoning for every decision is very taxing and it takes a lot of Hmm. time so it's kind of like um yeah I mean I would encourage people to do it for a lot of things especially when it's like major lifestyle changes like if it is a huge shift to your diet like going vegan um, to kind of critique like okay is it because I watched a documentary and you know is there another documentary out there that says like the complete opposite or um, again if, if documentaries are your only source of information then that will kind of leave you with two contrasting uh, points of view but then you can kind of be like oh I wonder if there's actually like you know science or research or whatever that I can look at or a trusted source of information that I can use to inform my decision um and anyway that was like a lot about veganism i think with carnivore diet a lot of it is just authority bias cult thinking and also kind of like efforts to be controversial so like oh we have like so many years of like piles and books and like all of this evidence that to say that vegetables and plants are healthy i'm gonna ignore all of that and say that no well we just have to eat animals um Hmm. and i think it's kind of like i think a lot of it is just kind of uh I don't want to call it attention seeking, but it's, you know, an effort to be controversial, an effort to be like, oh, I don't do what everybody else does. And I'm I'm such a critical thinker that I'm, you know, doubting something that is essentially fact in nutrition um, Mm. that, you know, vegetables are are, are necessary. Um, But yeah, I'll I'll stop there. I guess, like, are there any, like, specific questions that you have around, like, like these extreme diets and, like, why people are pulled towards them? Um, so I suppose like it's it's an interesting topic of conversation because you know you mentioned with the whole cult thinking mm-hmm. you know if, if we if we look at even just cults in general people are generally attracted to being part of a group the group identity and that's a big big component of these diets um and I suppose it's a it's a it's a problem with nutrition as a whole because we generally like to form these camps, and even the evidence based crowd can be considered a camp in certain in certain ways. And I suppose as we as we talked about earlier, some people are so evidence based that it's like if you don't have a study for that, then you're wrong. Mm-hmm. And you know that in itself is 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 incorrect. And it's a, you know, it's a logical fallacy because I suppose it's science is not science doesn't necessarily give us the one hundred percent. Here's here's a study and it showed this. It mean it whenever that study comes out, it doesn't mean that this thing that we're testing is one hundred percent true. But it's more so this is being added to what might be true, and the more we can add to the body of literature then the better idea we can have on if something is right or wrong true or false um and i suppose with diet there is so many what would you say there is there's there can be a lot of ambiguity with different things and when you combine group identity and anecdotal evidence of people having good experiences with certain diets in particular these extreme diets and then you add in a lot of the lack of critical thinking and scientific literacy it it does like 
it it's no surprise in a sense that this field is all over the place <laughs> in a sense you know when you compare nutrition science to something like physics or engineering like they have it so easy like it's like mm-hmm. <laughs> they they agree on most things it's be- and that's generally because you know it, they they can sort of test a lot of these things and the some of the mechanisms are a lot more clear cut whereas with nutrition it's 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 not and then nutrition is also influenced heavy heavily by all these um behaviorisms and, and stuff like that but i suppose that's where the a lot of these extreme diets form from but one thing that's very interesting about the carnivore diet is there seems to be a lot of cases of the of people getting cured in quotation marks of autoimmune diseases so what what's your thoughts on that okay good question so um my my general view of this is that like carnivore diet is an extreme elimination diet so for some autoimmune conditions okay so we can consider like okay celiac disease is an autoimmune condition so your body can't process pollution um, it's there's a test for it. It's very clear that you have celiac disease, and when you remove celiac or gluten from your diet, um, your symptoms like massively improve. Like you get substantially better. There are absolutely intolerances out there that we don't have tests for. They're very difficult to identify. It can up, it maybe it's potentially like um, not even on a food level, but on like a specific ingredient level. Um, so like I think the world of food is so complex and people can have just the strangest intolerances and allergies to food so if you're somebody who unbeknownst to you suffers with particular issues so like you have like rash or you have um, I don't know you're constantly having stomach discomfort or any of these things and you essentially cut out all food from your diet except for meat your symptoms will clear up so I, I think that's what's happening in the majority of cases. So there's some kind of like argument to be made here for, um, I mean, it's good that that gets identified that, okay, it's because, so I think the, the, I, the attribute, the attribution of what's going on is misplaced. So people are like, oh, I gave up all of this food and I started eating carnivore diet and carnivore diet made me so much better so like all of these symptoms improved i'm feeling like the best i've ever felt and it's all thanks to eating nothing but meat when in Mm. fact it's because you probably eliminated a trigger food or series of foods that really didn't agree with you that you had an allergy or an intolerance to so it's they're kind of viewing it not as like the exclusion of things that might have been a problem but more so like attributing it to oh the wonders of the carnivore diet it has magical healing properties and so on so i think i'm it's good that like, you know, that can be, I guess, acknowledged that, okay, elimination diets do seem to improve symptoms in some people, but that would then mean, so for IBS, uh, irritable bowel syndrome, you do an elimination diet. So you often cut out a large amount of foods and see how somebody responds to that and then start slowly reintroducing foods to see, do the symptoms come back? And then you kind of know, okay, we introduced oranges and we saw that your symptoms came back so okay let's remove oranges and we'll continue adding and removing foods to see what like what is the actual food that's causing you your issues and in an ideal world that would be what the carnivore people were doing 
but I don't think that they're acknowledging that, you know, maybe they had a food intolerance um, and that was the problem. Or, you know, they're kind of like, I guess they, they're just not thinking like that. They're thinking, oh, this is a magical cure-all for whatever issues I had. And that's, that's the end of it. It's not because of a specific food or anything I was eating. It's that, you know, all types of food or vegetables or whatever are not good for me, which isn't actually the case. So that's kind of, I guess, how, how I'm thinking about some of those cases where people are... Um, getting like a lot better I suppose do you have differing thoughts there or how have you been thinking about it um no I would say my my line of thinking is quite similar um you know I suppose and another thing is there's another big case of um authority bias built into the carnivore date because you have guys like doctor sean baker who are big proponents of it yeah um and another thing is then you have like jordan peterson's daughter michaela who has and, and jordan peterson they've got large audiences mm-hmm. so this is this is another problem people with large audiences can be spouting a lot of this knowledge and yeah spreading misinformation but yeah it's it's just i find it those types of things i find very interesting because although we know that vegetables and fruit are good and fiber is super important for gut health but then you you know it's just it's very interesting to me as a evidence-based nutritionist whatever you want to call it to have these cases of people you know having these miraculous recoveries from um these autoimmune diseases even if they are anecdotal and you know i suppose anecdotal evidence i suppose i should define that an anecdotal piece of evidence is a personal um case of you experiencing something so and that, like you might be talking to mary in the shop and she said oh jesus i had um um i cut out gluten there and i feel great and i lost weight right so that's mary's anecdotal evidence whereas the scientific evidence um would reveal that well she just cut out a load of different food groups and she lost she reduced her calorie intake and that's how she lost weight but you know it's just again taking it back to um the carnivore diet i just find it interesting and again it just goes to show the complexity and the i suppose the problem in the in problems built-in problems with the nutrition with nutrition science because it's so complex and there's so many confounding variables that it becomes difficult to get very solid answers. Again, like as I was saying earlier, when you compare to fields like physics, engineering, that type of thing, there there does seem to be more cases of A plus B equals C mm-hmm. um, in those types of hard sciences when we compare it um, versus nutrition science where there's a lot more ambiguity. And then again, you have all this built in behavior behavioral uh, what would you say there's a lot of this built in um this component of human behavior that is making the situation or the field in itself more complicated but um yeah no like i I definitely agree with you um i just think it's like it just goes to show us that we we're still looking for a lot of the answers um like even since even over the last year like there's a, there's been a lot of different things that i have changed my views on not nothing drastic but you know there there are there are a few different things that i have probably 
put less less of a focus into certain things and more of a focus into other things. So an example of that would be I would do some sort of mindfulness-based eating strategy now with almost all of my clients, especially those who have body composition goals. Whereas, you know, when I done my nutrition qualification, there wasn't an enormous amount of um, material on that. There was little bits. But again, my, I suppose, after doing some research and experimenting and doing it with clients and gaining the experience to me it seems like something that's very very important for most people when it comes to their nutrition so that's just another example of um my views and my beliefs changing in certain ways i don't know if you have any particular examples of that i know you don't really work in the field um as much as myself because you're you're um, you have a job in another field but have you got any other examples of that personally I have the exact same example. Um, so yeah, no, for sure. So I I started um like I think yeah. So you're totally right. Like the qualification that I did didn't cover the mindfulness um side of nutrition, but I definitely. So I started doing it myself. Um, I want to say over a year ago, but like I mean, like relatively recently, right? You know, I started reading more in that space. There's actually a good body of literature supporting mindful eating and mindful mm. eating interventions for various things. Um so I started trialing it on myself and um I also I think it's something that I would be more likely to recommend to people now. It's like it's just I just I think it's very powerful. The evidence is is quite um there behind it. So yeah, for sure. I, I, I wouldn't say it's something I changed my mind on, but it's definitely like a new thing that I started exploring. Mm. In terms of things that I've like changed my mind on, I'm like struggling to think of examples, but at the, like in saying that I know that there's a bunch. Um, I think I've definitely moved away from, I don't want to say black and white answers because I don't think I ever gave particularly black and white answers. But when people ask me a question about like calories or macros, previously I would have just answered that question but now I tend to be like here's the answer to your question but also do you need to track calories do you need to track macros like how's your relationship with food like I get super meta about it because nutrition like I think it's so easy to be reductionist with nutrition and and like really just start getting obsessed with the minute details and even like that could just be uh the food side of things like okay nutrition is food like my diet is all I'm going to focus on they're kind of like you're touching on like there's a psychology component and kind of being mindful about your nutrition can be very powerful and there's also like sleep and there's activity and there's so much that can actually like in a side sort of a way affect your nutrition and your goals so I think Mm. I, I guess I would love I, I think I'm more holistic in my approach to nutrition now and I don't really yes. like the word holistic because it's like a little bit uh you know I start thinking of like homeopathy and stuff <laughs> yeah. but, um yeah. I, it's, it's definitely like something that I I feel a, a, quite strongly about actually is that like you just you can consider one aspect of somebody's life in isolation from the rest of it and again like I think you know we're like very much on the same page about you know behavior change and stuff but it's like I, I think I'm continuously trying to put emphasis on like humans and just the whole person and mm. everything that makes up that person and how that needs to be considered. 
so it's kind of like yeah I think like really respecting like the psychology of that person um and their their experiences like what led them to the point that they're considering a change in their diet like everything that that means to them their social circle like there's so much that goes into these decisions um and I think yeah just as I've kind of I would say like matured in nutrition that's just an area that I put more and more emphasis on um I think as well like I've become a lot less um (laughs) like opposed to veganism um Mm. I don't want to say that I was ever opposed to it but I definitely think um when it first started getting popular it was a lot more of a belief um like and I guess emotional uh stance that people were taking like a, a kind of like a moralistic stance that people were pushing onto other people so that it was kind of like you, anybody that I knew who was vegan or the encounters that I had had was very like not good I would say that people were like oh if you're not vegan then you're a bad person and that was kind of my perception of hmm. the vegan diet which is not absolutely not how it is like that's I would say that's probably like two percent of vegans are loud and Mm. obnoxious and judgy but because they have such loud voices they get heard and so I would have said that would have been my my perspective a few years ago but now I'm like if somebody wants to go vegan and it's not because you know for just for the health reasons they, they, they think it's like healthier than any other way of eating as long as that's not the reason I'm like listen go for it like these are the supplements that you should probably be taking get regular blood tests you know do whatever you want to do whereas previously I, I would have kind of said oh like you know is it kind of like a belief system that you're just trying to get into because everybody else is doing and it's trendy or like you know it's unhealthy because it, it like it doesn't give you all of your vitamins and minerals and like that's true but that doesn't mean it's not something that people can do because people can just buy supplements so I think that's probably an area that I've sort of changed in as well hmm. yeah uh, I don't know if you've ever seen vegan gains on YouTube but I feel like he he damaged the old vegan movement uh, <laughs> quite a bit did, yeah <laughs> you know and, and I'd be the same in terms of like just based on his repulsiveness in, as a human being it sort of like turned me off yeah the vegan movement um, no 100 percent. and i think that's it's, it's like that's another kind of thing that we fall into it's like we sort of paint people with the same or like paint groups with the same brush or we stereotype people which again is like a just a, a like a bias that people have it's like i guess one of those heuristics that we fall into um is that we stereotype people and if we have like a few examples of a certain group acting a particular way we just paint everybody with the same brush because our brain doesn't want to you know have to go through this calculation every time we meet somebody being like is this person the same as like all of the other people i've met that are in this group or are they different and how are they different and blah blah blah. like you kind of just you see somebody you're like oh they kind of are like all of this other group they fit in with this group they identify as part of this group therefore they're probably very similar so you kind of paint everybody with that same brush and I think that kind of happened at least for me with um the vegan movement especially at the start and yeah people like vegan gains and um I don't know if you ever experienced this but so I lived in Dublin for quite a while and on um just at the start of like O'Connell Street kind of near Trinity there would be um like vegan protesters there like every yeah. week with like really horrible posters and like Vancouver of, was really bad for that yeah and it's kind of yeah. like I mean I think there's so much to like go into in that it's just first of all who would ever change their approach to anything by being attacked as they walk past you on the street like that's not a way to engage somebody as part of like your movement like people mm. 
don't kind of form a natural curiosity through you yelling at them like that's not how people change their mind or uh, like it's totally possible for people to change their minds through like reasonable conversations and being curious and uh, kind of asking them you know where their knowledge has come from and like you know the sources of that knowledge and their beliefs and like everything we've, ha- we've discussed in- on this podcast but absolutely the wrong way to go about it is just to, to just start attacking people and try to like emotionally blackmail them into change that doesn't work and mm. that's the kind of approach that these um protesters were taking so i yeah i think like that those were some of my earlier experiences with veganism and it was just like okay that group is like very aggressive they're very judgmental they're rude like all of this stuff and then i'm like then i had some friends who like they had always been vegetarian and then they they went vegan and i was like oh, but you're nothing like those people. So like my Mm -hmm. biases got challenged, my stereotypes got challenged and I was forced to like update my beliefs. And I think that's something that in general, like people to be open to is, and I think like people kind of do this, but you know, you have a belief and you, something happens that causes you to maybe question that belief or update it. And you can just kind of think back of like, oh, okay, now that I have this new information, like what does that change for me? Um, have my beliefs changed or like are they the same and like are any I guess beliefs connected to that belief change like I think I also used to have this uh, kind of association with vegetarians and that's completely gone because like vegans kind of Mm. took over so like my beliefs about vegetarians got updated like all of these kind of these these I guess yeah these beliefs that I had changed based off um, updated evidence and I think that's something that people should continuously strive to do is like check your beliefs like ask yourself if there's any evidence that kind of challenges the belief that you hold and it's a very robotic way of thinking and it absolutely does not come natural to people but um I think it's like a kind of a fun way of thinking once you get like some practice at it and kind of grow it as a skill yeah and it it really helps you develop as a person I think because you know it I think it's like someone might say to you well why what's the benefit of being a critical thinker and it's generally because you can get to the most truthful answer yeah i think that's a that's that's a really good in my mind that's kind of a good i suppose motivation to be a critical thinker but with that being said um i want to switch over a little bit something a little bit more fun because i know we talked about we've been talking a lot about nutrition which is fantastic of course and i think me and you could probably talk about this for a bit for days um Mm. rebecca but (laughs) um i want to talk about it about conspiracy theories um because this obviously relates to critical thinking and using logic and reason and being rational and interestingly like i have a friend and he's very conventionally intelligent he has you know a degree and he's good at his job and he knows lots of things about different aspects and you know he could he, he could talk a lot about different things like history for example right but he almost insults his intelligence by being a vehement believer in a lot of conspiracy theories up to the point of flat earth. He doesn't believe in flat earth theory, but he believes a lot of the other ones. Mm. So Rebecca, basically what I'm trying to say is, is Bill Gates trying to kill all of us? Um, I really hope not. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay. So I think like the topic of conspiracy theories is super interesting. I feel like there's, we could do a podcast on this alone. I think there probably are podcasts on this alone. Yeah. But um, (laughs) it's, yeah, it's a very interesting topic. I think something to like call out is like when we hear conspiracy theory, 
our theorists, we think of people who have like tinfoil hats on and they're like, you know, oh, I was abducted by aliens and uh, Michael Jackson is alive and like all of this stuff. Um, and Bill Gates is trying to kill us, like all of these conspiracy theories. But it's like conspiracy theories sometimes are true, right? So like there have been cases where, I mean, I can only think of like American examples where people were like, oh, I think the CIA is spying on this group of people. And that was a conspiracy theory. And it was true. Mm. So like yeah. there, I, I don't think it's not like a black and white thing of like, oh, conspiracy theorists are all crazy. Um, because sometimes the conspiracy theorists are right. Um, but then there are these theories that are very easy to disprove, but it doesn't kind of matter what data that these people are presented with. They're always going to find like an exception or they're going to move the goalposts or some, they'll find some reason to continue believing and theorizing. Um, I think like, yeah, there's, there's a lot to be said about conspiracy theories, but um, there's, what is, have you watched that documentary, the the flat earth? one yeah it's on netflix yeah behind yeah. the curve i think yeah. if anybody's interested in like just conspiratorial thinking that is really good to watch and i think if anything it does kind of speak to what you were just describing that you can like these people aren't stupid like they're actually very intelligent a lot of them are scientifically minded and they're running very good experiments but there's something going on that even if their own experiments prove them wrong they can't update their belief because like the the truth or the opposite of the conspiracy theory like the actual you know uh conventional theory doesn't it they just can't fathom it being the truth um so there's something like blocking them from accepting that and um sometimes like people do um get past the, these conspiracy theories and like eventually they'll change their mind but it, it seems to be like a particular type of person is drawn to a conspiracy theory. So it's kind of like if you believe in one, you kind of might believe in a few others. And it's like mm. a way of your it's your it's, it's almost like a version of critical thinking. Right. Because you're like, I don't want to believe in the mainstream thing. I have reason to believe that that's not true. And that's cool. Like, yeah, like totally like challenge the status quo. Like. I, I would encourage anybody to do that. I'm like, okay, all of the information I've told you on this podcast, like fact check that, like make sure, like hold me accountable. Like don't hmm. believe it because you view me as an authority telling you this stuff, like be critical and think that way. But it does get to a point where it's kind of like counterproductive and it's also kind of maybe harmful. So in the case of like this Bill Gates stuff, like wanting to kill us all, like that kind of actively instills fear in people. There's actually like no evidence to support it. There's like, I mean, it kind of causes people to panic. Um, there, then there's like conspiracy theories that aren't actively doing harm, except to maybe people's brain cells, like flat earth theory. Um, so I think like there's kind of um, like a distinction between the types of conspiracy theories that people believe and communicate out as well. But um, no, it's like it's a really interesting topic. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll pause there. Do you, have, do you have any other questions like specifically about these theories? Um, well, I suppose like in the current climate, um, 2020 has been a great year for conspiracy theories, mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because it's just been wild. And generally when there is chaos and people are trying to make sense of chaotic environments and orient themselves in, in a very complex world, that's where a lot of these conspiracy theories sprout up because I suppose 
again, it comes back into what I was talking earlier about heuristics. If you are struggling to understand something and somebody comes along with, here's X, Y, and Z, and it allows you to sort your thoughts into an easier to understand way of thinking. And again, mixing that with sensationalism, which is a big part of what you were talking about earlier with regards to certain studies that come out about certain things, papers will come or newspapers and media outlets will come out with sensationalized headlines to get those clicks and all that good stuff. You know, if you if you mix a lot of these things together, that's what makes these conspiracy theories so attractive. And that's why it's so important to be I'm not saying be super skeptical about everything, mm-hmm. but be skeptical about things that are ambiguous. So things that are open to interpretation. Try and look at it from both sides. You know, as Rebecca said earlier, like, you know, as she said about herself and, and as I'm going to say about myself, why don't you go off and like if there's something that if there's something that has sort of given you an idea in your mind that we've talked about here, go off and try and refute some of the things that, that we talked about. So try and try and find evidence, say for example, that that uh, fiber is bad for you. You know, like mm-hmm. most people will say fiber is good for you, it's good for your gut health or whatever. But, you know, to get a better grasp of the, like better understanding of what's going on, it's it can be good to actually try and figure out, try and look for evidence to the contrary of what most people believe. And that's a component of critical thinking as well. But taking it back to conspiracy theories, rather than if you are someone that is inclined to believe conspiracy theories out the gate what you should do is you should look for evidence for and for against conspiracy conspiracy theories so let's say for example you know just just out of, just for the crack like you could if you've seen an article about bill gates um trying to control our minds or kill us all with some sort of vaccine program then try and put into google uh, a title that may be contrary to that and then look for articles that are trying to debunk the conspiracy theory um, and then take those two belief systems and those two viewpoints and look at them again from a critical standpoint and weigh them, weigh them both up and say, right, okay, which seems to be the most credible? Which seems to me, based on where I'm at, based on what I know about the world, which seems to me to be the most believable and realistic. Because I think that my big problem with conspiracy theories is I'll I'll usually ask people questions such as who does this actually benefit for this like conspiracy theory to be real? Who does it benefit? And if it benefits a lot of people, then, you know, maybe maybe it does have some credibility but if we take for example the the conspiracy theory that ca- the cure for cancer is being hidden mm. it doesn't really benefit an enormous amount of people for that to happen and then another question is if if everybody is if there's all these people that are trying to like you know i suppose the second question that i would bring in there would be how difficult would it be to conceal this conspiracy theory mm. and there's a, there's a, I forget where I heard this, but it's always pretty funny. And it's like, there's only, there's only, if you have three people, um, 
and you tell them a secret, there's only one way for that secret to be kept a secret. And that's if two of them are dead. (laughs) (laughs) So there's a, a component of, with conspiracy theories, how difficult would it be for people to conceal it? For humans to conceal it. So if we take the cure for the cure for cancer being hidden and or concealed, how difficult would it be for that to be kept a secret based on um, how groundbreaking that would be um, from the perspective of a scientific researcher? You know, so th- these are kind of the questions that you have to ask yourself and some of the conspiracy theories that you're tackling. But as Rebecca said, some conspiracy theories end up being true. Mm. So again, it's not about just going to the other side of the spectrum and being the type of individual that doesn't believe anything conspiratorial, but it's using that critical thinking mindset and saying, right, how does this chalk up against logic and weighing up the two different sides of the argument, which seems the most realistic. Yeah. So have you got anything to add there? Um, I don't think so. I think like, I, yeah, I agree with everything that you've laid out there. I think like, as far as I know, there's no, you know, theoretical model of conspiracy theories in the literature. But I think um, from some of the stuff that I've read, it's like, so I think like, for the most part, if somebody like if the general lay person here is a conspiracy theory, and they're like, they, they can kind of fact check, and they can kind of make the, the, the go through this critical thinking process that you just outlined. But for I think for some of the people who um have like quite a lot they're quite they have quite a lot of conspiratorial thinking um it kind of can stem from a few different places in that like they don't trust you know the government or they don't trust science and they think that you know science is hiding things and it's to control Mm. you know control the work the world and you know the fluoride in the water is for you know um mass sedation like all of these things it's like okay it's kind of like they are I guess they feel like the people in power are are malicious or, you know, they don't trust a certain group of people or, you know, the case of the anti-vaxxers, like they think that, you know, there's some kind of grand conspiracy to give people autism and it's being covered up. So some of these, I don't think that they can be like, you can't apply rational thinking to because just the foundation of the belief or like, I guess the, the human emotion that's kind of like, it's, like kind of spurring it on like this feeling of like powerless or distrust powerlessness or distrust is um kind of ingrained in, in some people um so I think like with all of that being said I think it's also like fair to assume that some people just won't update their beliefs or they'll think that they have gone through this rational thinking process and still arrive at the same conclusion because in their world in the in the kind of the way that they've processed things that is their truth so I, I guess I might I'm just like caveating that even like somebody could probably still go through this process and still kind of like land on their conclusion that, oh, we actually don't have enough data to say that I'm wrong. Um, mm. So, yeah, I, I guess like that would be my only other flag. But I think in general, like um, having this approach of like ration, like rationally, like being like, what's the data? Like what would what would have to be true true for this to be um, correct? And why would people do this and all of that kind of stuff is totally the right way to approach it for the like the general person but then i guess like conspiratorial thinkers are just another ball game Hmm. yeah and uh i i always like to recommend some kind of other materials based on the conversations that we're having so um uh, the irrational ape by david grimes is a great book about critical thinking and he is i think he's a cancer researcher 
but he's also a physicist as well. So he's a pretty intelligent guy and he brings a lot to the table with regards to getting a better understanding of how to think critically or how to try and get a better understanding of things that have inherent complexities. Um, So that's a really good book. If anyone is listening to this and they want to learn a little bit more about critical thinking and how it relates to things like conspiracy theories, that's a really good um, piece of media or a book or an audio book, as I say, you can get in both forms that you could dig your teeth into um, if you wanted to, 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 to go into this further. Um, but yeah, so I think I'm going to wrap it up there. Um, Rebecca, I, I like to ask kind of people at the end of the podcast a general question about what are two or three things or habits that they could do in their daily life that have that would have a generally good impact on their health and well-being that you personally have found to be effective and that you would recommend to people i know it's quite a it's quite a generalized question but it is i feel like i'm going to give a very generic answer like eat your vegetables um <laughs> so would, okay so like for real though eat your vegetables um i think some other ones I don't want to say like lift, like um, lifting as in exercising. I don't want to be that prescriptive, but I think like some form of movement is always going to be beneficial for people. And okay, so my third one is sort of like long-winded, so bear with me. But um, so I think being on lockdown, I've noticed that a lot of friends and family and just in general on social media and everything, people are very focused on productivity. And um, I would like, I think a reframe of the word productivity so I think people typically like think of productivity as doing or creating something or like working towards something um, and having something to show for it but I think people can be productive in other ways by kind of focusing on themselves somewhat so I would encourage people to try and reframe what it means to be productive in a way that kind of puts you at the center of it so perhaps it's productive for you to feel like good and happy and relaxed to read a book or or, like binge watch a Netflix show or Mm. whatever it is and like that is productive like working on yourself is productive um so yeah that would be the other thing is like kind of sort of reframing productivity but with the the message of the the healthy thing that would have a positive impact is like focusing on yourself rather than having to feel like you're always doing something or working on something like make that mm. be yourself yeah yeah like i think hustle culture is a big thing um whereas like if you're not working all the time and if you're if you're basically not elon musk you're a failure you know which is just like hilarious because you know as as, as we've discussed in the podcast like we all have these different behaviors and different mindsets and come from different circumstances you know and i and i think that if you feel like as rebecca said um you know don't don't feel guilty about you know as you said binge watching a netflix show or, or reading reading a book because that's actually you know and this is something that i that i do with my clients i have i have a lot of clients um that are very busy mums so they have three or four kids and they have a lot of life stress. They've got all these things to think about. Lockdown has exacerbated the whole situation. And I would say like the bigger component of, of how I'm coaching them is actually not to do with their nutrition. It's more to do with me, me giving them guidance on, okay, you need to, 
here's some suggestions on what you could be doing to relax a little bit more because I use the analogy of we have all got this bucket um I like to call it the stress bucket (laughs) and you can only fill that bucket up with a certain amount of water before it starts to overflow Mm -hmm. so you know if you keep adding stress and stress and stress and adding water to the bucket you are eventually going to end up with an overflowing bucket but if you can do things like reading a book binge watching an Netflix show Mm -hmm. doing something that generally relaxes you that takes water out of the bucket and that is super super important because Nobody really gets anything done and it's not healthy for you to have an overflowing bucket. So absolutely 100% agree with that, Rebecca. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, so um, thank you for coming on, Rebecca. This was a really good chat and I'm definitely going to have you on again because I'd say there's so many different things that we could have a great conversation about. But um, if people want to have a chat with you or find more of your stuff, where's the best place to find you? only instagram so you can find me at t two triceps so that's t-e-a and dash two dot triceps um or you can just type in rebecca nolan into instagram search it will probably come up super awesome well thanks again rebecca and guys if you enjoyed the podcast it really does help to share it around um on your social media because i suppose as i say there's a lot of podcasts these days which is fantastic lots of great podcasts out there but amongst that noisy environment it can be difficult for smaller podcasts like this one or ones that are getting started to get out there so if you enjoyed it please share it um and because it does massively help uh, with the algorithm and all that good stuff um but yeah thanks again rebecca for coming on and i look forward to having you on again and guys thank you for listening as always and we'll catch you in the next one